Hi, this is Sunny Singh. I'm the founder of Round Glass, and I'm happy and very glad to be on the show with Akshay. Did you know that language translation services is a $56 billion industry globally? You may be wondering why I'm sharing this data with you. Stay tuned and you will understand. The healthcare industry in the US is an $800 billion industry and it comprises several stakeholders who have to work together starting from the government, which partly funds healthcare to employers who provide medical insurance to insurance companies, to hospitals and clinics. And each of these stakeholders speak their own language and record data in their own formats and structures. Imagine the market opportunity in translating the data and information flow in this ecosystem. This is exactly the opportunity that Edifex capitalized on. The large market opportunity combined with the excellence in executing is what eventually led to an acquisition of Edifex by private equity at a valuation of more than a billion dollars. In this episode, your host Akshayta talks with Sunny Singh who founded Edifex and spent two and a half decades in scaling it before it was acquired. Sunny is currently the founder of Roundglass, which is a combination of social enterprise and a for-profit wellness business. Stay tuned for this amazing conversation and subscribe to the Founder Thesis podcast and any audio streaming app to hear veteran founders talk about building billion-dollar businesses. So my first, you know, so interestingly, my bachelor's was in textile engineering. Yeah, that's the reason. The reason was not because I was trying to take something in, in my in my career. It's because that's the only engineering I could get to stay in Delhi, where my hometown was. So I took textiles, and then my first master's was in computer in industrial engineering. I wanted to do robotics, and as I was doing industrial engineering and management, after a year, I realized that's not what I wanted to do, and I started in computer science courses, and I started enjoying them, and so I ended up doing a. a a second master, along with my first one. And when I finished the first, then I did my second. So it took me three years and I did both my masters. But I ended up doing computer science. But the, the best part is that I, I am a, I'm the worst computer coder in the world, I think. I've never written a single line of code for my companies and because I just know how to code. I, I don't know how to code and I've got a master's in computer science. So, and, but yeah, so I have those degrees, but I've not used anything in those degrees that I can remember in my career, or at least if I did, I, I miserably failed at it. So you were working at Microsoft before you started up. How did you, like, tell me that journey to Microsoft? Yeah, so I was, um, I did one job in Montana. Then I did another job in, I moved to Seattle in 93. And I did, I was doing supply chain management with a company called Expeditors. And a lot of EDI, <clears throat> a lot of logistics stuff. And, and at that point I had, EDI is an electronic way, it's an electro electronic paradigm of exchanging information. And so, so sending like purchase orders, invoices, and sending, sending them to paper of packs, you send them electronically. And so there are standards by which you send this information back and forth worldwide, whether it's the US or whatever, and, and then you subscribe to those standards and therefore the other person can read what you've sent. Um, so um, anyways, <clears throat> Um, and then I, I had my, my second job, I decided that I was going to become an entrepreneur because I was not thriving in my jobs. 
And after a lot of thinking, um, I realized that what I'm, what I'm cut out to be is an entrepreneur. So, so, so when I decided to be an entrepreneur, I, I still wasn't sure what I wanted to do as an entrepreneur. And, and so <clears throat> a call came from, from Microsoft, a friend of mine saying, Hey, you know, you have an expertise in technologies like EDI, logistics, supply chain, come and help me out. And at first I told him that, look, I'm going to start something. So it's not a good idea for me to to come and, and work for you because I'm going to leave in a year or so. And he said, don't think about it. <clears throat> and, and let's just chat again. And then I thought about it. So like, it's going to take me a year, year and a half to figure out what I wanted to do. So let me, uh, let me go, go to this rule. So I called him. I said, if, you, if being with you a year, then I, I'll be happy to come over. And I did. And I stayed there for a year and a half. And, and by the time I figured out what I wanted to do, and I then embarked upon my, my first company. You had the green card by the time you decided? Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. So in my first job, I got my green card. It took mm. me about, I think, three years, mm. uh, two and a half, maybe, maybe less or somewhere around two, two, two and a half years and I got my green card. Got it. So tell me that, you know, like what was the idea which you wanted to execute? So the intent was, you know, I was a pretty good student of the industry. I knew my industry quite well, but I had never managed teams or business insurance or PNL. So I was not a business focused guy, but I was a good student of my industry. And so after dabbling with many ideas as to what I should do, I, I said, look, I should do something that is, that aligns with my competency. And my competency is, is these domain areas of electronic data exchange, electronic solutions, electronic commerce, um, supply, automated supply chains, etc. <clears throat> so we built a tool which allows you to document how these transactions are going to be transacted going to be sent back and forth, you know, where does very, what piece of information go? So you document it, you send the document to the other side and say, look, this is how I'm going to send you the information. So you know how to read it. And then this is how we'll receive the acknowledgement or information back from me. And this is how it should, it should be compiled. And then of course we build a processing engine around. So how do you define the information? When you get the information, how do you process the information? See that's aligned with your documentation that you have done. So we built both the documentation tool first and then the engine to, to read the data. So it's a data processing engine. And then the third, we put a management layer on top to be able to manage and track and monitor everything that was going on. So the sum total of that was the first set of products we built. And, um, and we did well. Um, uh, like, give me an example of what <clears throat> would be the use case for this. So if let's say a company. Uh, let's say a health plan like um, Blue Cross Blue Shield of California or a Cigna or an Aetna, they tell the providers, when you send me claims for reimbursement, because you're going to send me a claim, I'm going to reimburse you. The claim should be in this format. The claim number should be here. The claim amount should be here. The claim date should be here. The episode should be here. All the related information should be in, in these various places as you send me the electronic feed. And when I receive it, then I have the engine to process it because I, I know what the feed should look like, so I process it. And if it's 100% correct, then I consume it and operate my backend systems. If it's not, I'm going to reject it and say you have to resend it, but here's what's wrong. And similarly, when you have to sell payment information that the, that the health plan, the Cigna sends to his provider and saying, I'm going to send you the payment confirmation that I have sent you this payment and this payment is for this claim. This is what you asked for. This is what I'm paying. Here's the delta of what I'm pay not paying. Why am I not paying it? So all of that goes in certain places in the electronic feed. And, uh, and so we did, you know, so there were many such documents between claims and claim payments and enrollments 
and clinical records. There's a lot of information and documents and the information, the documents that get exchanged. So we subscribed, prescribed and subscribed to all of those docs, the formats, and, uh, and that's how we enabled companies in the healthcare system to do electronic exchange of information. Uh, because okay. you can't ran- randomly send any information to anybody and saying, hey, go figure it out. And this data was streaming over the internet? Yeah, that's right. I guess today, this field of EDI, I, I don't think it is something which people talk about today. I, I guess it's kind of got replaced by, let's say, like an API or a Google form even could also be something which... But this was like a, a precursor to what today happens through API calls and... Things no, like no, that. that's not that's not correct because an API is a restrictive sort of information you'll send for an app to consume. And the amount of information that's exchanged in these documents and thereby the dozens of different types of documents that are exchanged is not it's not easy to define an API and therefore and also use different systems for you know, different people can have different claims management systems. They can have different benefit systems, enrollment systems. Each of them will have to prescribe to an API that that is very clean and straightforward. Right, so so that many to many that I'm using many system wise, you're using many, or the industry is many to many, and how does each of them define an API? That means the same thing. So the only way to do it is by prescribing standards that this is how you exchange the information, and um, even a lot of APIs are standardized. Like it's like think of think of a do, a document standard on purchase orders or claims or payments as being an API, but universally accepted. That means that if you send me information in this format, I'll be able to consume it. And if I send you information in this format, you'll be able to consume it. So it's universal, universifying the API that is maintained and published by a third party, but not by an individual vendor. Because standards are prescribed by, by consortiums and associations, by, they all contribute to this. So, so Bluetooth is a standard, for example. Uh, AI will eventually publish some standards, I'm sure. So EDI and XML, uh, and other standards they have, they, they are, they're worked by consortium and associations to prescribe, you know, this is how information will be exchanged within that industry. So you created the standard for the healthcare industry? No, we, we subscribe to it. We, we contribute to it. Okay. Our people used to okay. go there and sit in meetings and help craft them okay. as part of the collaborative effort. And then you, of course, supported it in our products. So you were like an implementation partner for healthcare companies who want to do electronic exchange of data. We were we were a products company. We built a product. We gave them the product, which okay. was a which was a gateway that would take all incoming information, process it correctly, and feed it into the incoming into the backend systems. Okay. Take the information from the backend systems, massage it, clean it up, and then send it out to all the business partners. So we had a gateway that sat at the edge of the enterprise. Got it. Got it. And uh, their IT teams would do the integration with their backend, like the IT teams of these healthcare companies. That's right. Got it, got it. So uh, I've understood the idea. Now tell me about the journey of taking this idea to reality, you know, that zero to one journey. Like, did you need to raise funds before you started it? How did you get your first customer? How did you get your first team member? Like, you know, just go through that journey. Yeah, so um, the the, first is, I think, the whole journey of Edifex is a bit of an anomaly. We don't have we didn't have any investors, so it was fully self-funded as a company. Um, we struggled quite a bit a few years into the company. I think it was 1999, 2000. We were on the verge of bankruptcy, so we had lost 
a customer who was who had lost their funding and they 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 were responsible for seventy percent of our revenues. Wow. And then we had we read this read out. Yeah. Before we come to this, can you tell me how you reached here? Like ninety six, you started. How did you get your first customer? Uh, how, and did you build the product on your own, or did you like have a team and like? Yeah. So the way the product was built was I drew upon some you know friends and my network and 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 see if they wanted to kind of build this product for equity. And I was able to get in a bunch of people who were able to do that, and we worked and built the first product which was all built by, by people working evenings and weekends for equity. And then once you launch the product, we start building an in-house team because we had to enhance the product, support the product. And we had to, of course, you know, we had to build the sales team, the growth team, the marketing team to sell the product. So it was... Um, How did you get your first sale? My first sale was to my, my previous boss, so, uh, which was my first company I worked for, Expeditors. And they, you know, I, there was my, before Microsoft. So Microsoft also bought the product, but, but I went to him and said, Hey, I bought this product ready. It's a useful product. We always thought about, you know, leveraging something like this. And would you buy it? He said, if you give me this three or four or five features, I'll buy 10 licenses. So that was our first customer. And then Microsoft came in another couple of years down the road. Um, and even the first company I worked for Montana became a customer. So all three of them, the three companies I worked for became customers over time, but that's how we got, got our first customer. And how did you price it? Like you're saying people had to buy X number of licenses. Is it like one license is for one user? Yeah, that's right. They bought the number of each license for a user and then they will buy X number of seats for X number of users. Um, why do user-based pricing, I mean, from what I have understood about the product, it's a, uh, it is an automation of exchanging data between two different organizations through a standardized format. E even one single user would be good enough, like a company would just need to buy one license and that one user can, because it's, it's just like autopilot, right? Once you set it up, then the information just starts flowing. Yeah, see, it's, uh, no, it's, uh, companies have teams that help define their reference standards the engine, of course, is by server, how many servers you need to process all the information you. So, um, so the people will need more licenses than, you know, people bought 10, 20, 30, 40 licenses because there's a team working on different standards. The bigger the companies, the more people they have, the more information, okay. the more business partners, supply chain partners they have. So that became, mm. um, so that, that became, but the, the so that's a def, the, the, the product defines or the documentation product, the, the, the engine that processes the transactions. Uh, they, you know, they need servers. So if they have one server and it, and it taps out, then they need another server. Mm. Or they need a production LA and a staging server and a QA server. So we sell many server licenses of that. So no, we sold, okay. we sold a lot of licenses of the product. So each machine where the product is installed is one license. Like, like as you said, there were multiple servers where mm. they would install. Them. That's right. So if you're processing the transaction, the server, but if you are using it on a desktop, it's for each user mm. for the desktop. So mm. it was a user license. Mm. Mm. Got it. And you called it uh, EDFX, so that EDI, that stands for Electronic Data Interchange, I guess. <laughs> That's right. EDI is Electronic Data Interchange. Mm. Got it. So, yeah, coming to 1999, so you had, what kind of revenue were you doing when you lost that one big customer? Um, so what had happened was the, uh, we had, um, I think it was 1999 time frame. So, 
this customer lost 70% of the funding. And so they were, we lost our major customer, which was maybe almost 80% of our revenues. <laughs> and I uh, know 70% of revenue, they, they lost entire funding, I think. So they were scrambling or minimize the funding and we lost 70, 80% of our revenues. And then, um, uh, then the, 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 we had a sales pipeline and a sales leader, but we, the, the sales pipeline was not clean. It, was, it had accounts which, which will never realize into a sale. And so that became a double whammy. And, and so we said, what do we do? We have 125 plus people in here in Eastern Europe. We had all this overhead. Sales are not coming in. Revenues are dwindling down. And uh, I signed my company. What kind of revenues were you doing at that time? It was a sub when? 2 million. <clears throat> sub 2 million. And mm-hmm. I signed my company on my credit cards, right? So, so the funding came through my, you know, I used 15, 20 credit cards, a whole bunch of them and I and some consulting money. Mm-hmm. And that's how I got everything started. So mm-hmm. cash flow was very important for us. And when that happened, then we had to downsize. And we downsized to about like, 10 plus people here in the US and another 15 in Eastern Europe. And uh, we had to rejig and reorganize so, and that. 125 became 25. Give or take, yeah. Yeah. Wow. That must have been a pretty tough experience. Yeah, it was. Uh, and then we started racking up some debt and whatnot. So, you know, I was not a business guy, so I didn't know how to run a business well. And so here we were... Um, you know, we are stopping our, our landlord, we are stopping taxes because we have the money. We thought, you know, we'll pay it later because we always are, you know, optimists that the sales will pick up and we'll be able to pay everything. And we started incurring vendor debt. We, our payroll was delayed. The, the worst the worst period was by two, two months. And so we had all of these debt accumulating. And then we were pretty much on the verge of bankruptcy in 2000 and change. And then 9-11 Amazing. happened in 2001. So it was icing on the cake. It's like, what else could go wrong in the 9-11 happened? Like, how did you come out of this? And this must have been a pretty stressful time for you personally also, right? Like sleepless nights and all. Yeah. So it was, it was, it was pretty tough. Um, you know, it's, uh, first I didn't have any experience running a business, so I had no idea how to get out of this, how to get out of this mess. But at that time, I think, you know, just like when I signed the company, I, I did some soul searching, some deep soul searching, and I said, look, if um, I have three choices, what do I do? I can either, either shut the company down and everybody is telling me, shut the company down, go, you know, work in another company, go to work at Microsoft and this and that. Or I could declare bankruptcy and restart the company, or I could figure out how to save the company and just plug along. And at that time, I decided that if you have one more day to, to, to live and we had to hope to survive one more day, then why not we just focus on that one more day? And then we'll make the decision of one of these three things tomorrow. And that one day, one day became weeks and months and years. And, um, we didn't declare bankruptcy, we didn't shut the company down. And we kind of hunkered down to see what our core focus was, became very communicative to our team about all money's coming in, what's happening, what's not happening. We focused on our core product and so building new and we, we, we became very, very targeted, you know, very laser focused. And then um, it took us, I think, almost 2005, 2006, by the time we paid off all our debts, we paid the IRS off, um, all the money you owe them, we paid the landlord, we paid all the vendors, we paid all our, our associates, employees, gave them extra stock options. And uh, by 2005, 2006, we came out of, out of it. We started kind of, you know, getting out of the woodworks and becoming profitable. What did you feel were the things you did wrong because of which you landed in that kind of a situation? I think number one, decision-making was a bit slow. <clears throat> when we saw that there was light at the end of the tunnel, 
we should not think the light is there. There's some out over there. Should they, that's the train. And so we didn't make decisions <laughs> fast enough that, look, we should cut costs. We should cut people. We should, uh, you know, we should be more intelligent about our revenues and sales pipeline. And that was just a lack of business acumen and a lack of awareness and foresight about how businesses work. So I think that was the primary reason. There was no other reason. There's nothing else we could have done outside of being a bit more decisive and aggressive in our decision-making and a bit being more realistic in our revenue and projections. I think that was a major reason. Was it that you thought of yourself as the product guy and did not go that hands-on into the business part of it? No, I was, I was very hands-on and I was in the business side of things. I just didn't write any code. I did everything but writing code. I, I did all the sales and marketing and support. Um, I defined the product but didn't code the product. So I, I did a lot. I was involved in a lot. But as you know, things would have it that um, yeah. um, I think we, it's also that, you know, it's like, I didn't have enough senior or any senior person in my company to help me on the business side of things. But you learn that because, you know, you don't know what you do not know. And we started a business as a novice, as a very naive person. What do you do? So, uh, um, so yeah. So the way I look at it is it, it, it is what it is. It was what it was. The question is, you know, life through a curveball, you got to deal with it and you figure out how to deal with it and what to do about it. And then you do it. Oh, I mean, yeah. There's nothing, you know, things will happen. If not this, something else will happen. The question is, how do you deal with it? How do you, how do you confront it? How do you resolve it? How do you overcome it? And you were able to do so. So you basically got more aggressive with sales to get in more clients and make enough money to cover up the debt and pay off all of that. So then we paid off everything and took us about like six years. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, it was, it was pretty tough because during the same time when the company was floundering, my mother got mother was discovered with cancer in India, in, in India. So three weeks I was going to India, three weeks coming back to the US. I was doing three week, three week trips. So while I'm running my company through as worse a time as one can expect, then I do the personal situation. So it was it was pretty brutal, but you know, it's like uh, it kind of taught me who I am and you know, built it a bunch, you know, a lot of character for me and shaping me and defining who I am and how I deal with things. And mm-hmm. and I think I came out of and how much would you earn from a customer on an average? Like it all varied. It, it was like a it all varied fixed from, from rupees per li- or dollars per license per year. That kind of no, we had order. a perpetual model. So you, you charge them upfront and then collect maintenance of 12 percent. But all in all, um, the price point of a product kept increasing over time. At that point, was you know from from as a, as low as five hundred to two thousand to maybe 50,000, 60,000, 70,000. But of mm-hmm. course, later in the years, you know, Edifix was doing million dollar deals because he had mm-hmm. built more and more products mm-hmm. on top of what we already started. So that kind of, so the price point kept going up and up. Help me understand the product evolution journey. What, like, what were the additional products you built that led up to like million dollar deals? Yeah, so we had the design product, which is the documentation product. We had a runtime engine to process that information. We had a management console and layer on top of it to manage the flow and show visibility to what transaction coming in, what happened to them, what failed, why they failed. So you kind of have complete visibility, uh, visualization of it. <clears throat> and then we build more workflow products. So this is one product for transaction processing and management. Mm-hmm. And then we build a product for enrollment and encounters processing. So enrollments are 
when a employer sends information to the payer saying here are the employees that have been enrolled or the enrollment mm. status has changed. So you have to send that feed because that dictates the premiums that you pay to the health plan. So we get into that and processing that feed uh, encounters is a way of sending data to the government for so it can be reimbursed for managing a certain segment of the population. And if you don't submit mm. clean data, you won't get reimbursed. So we had mm. a very good way of ensuring that clean information went to the government so the reimbursement rate was 100% or close to it with the ability to rectify and get 100%. So we didn't count this product. And then last week, you know, the latest product we had built was population payment. Most of the contracts in the U.S. are fee-for-service. You get paid every time you provide a service. Whereas mm. trying with the idea of pay-for-performance is how well you do by a patient, not how much you do for a patient. So you build a pay-for-performance product, and that's the latest product. And then they've launched another product right now called prior authorization to authorize prior and expense before it's incurred. And you can electronically send that, get out. That means that if I do this procedure, I will get reimbursed. So the provider sends mm-hmm. that to the, to the payer. So we had added that product also just very easy. But we kept building more and more workflow products. So making the workflows, instead of being data interoperability and data exchange efficient, we made workflows more efficient taking one complex mm. workflow at a time. Mm. The uh, core reason for someone to buy the product could be that you would clean up the data? The first part was to that we ensure that the data is clean, that goes out and <clears throat> it is mm. cl- correct when it comes in. The workflow is to make mm. ensure that the flow of information and the accuracy of the information that flows to the workflow is very complete because mm. you know otherwise the system they were developing were manual, they, they were not well-crafted or architected. We ensure that the whole enrollment processing was very efficient and the encounters submission was very efficient. So besides mm. the interoperability gateway for data processing, we had the workflows and each had its own reason to exist. Mm. And your users here would typically be like a, a software engineer, right? This was not a product for the end user, like say someone who is in the back office who's actually processing data or processing claims or so on? No, the, the, every company has what we call a EDI team or whatever you want to call that team. And the team was responsible for defining the transactions and showing the data was flowing back and forth correctly or encounters are flowing back and forth correctly. So they were responsible for that. And so, and every, everybody, everybody had, you know, every, every company had Either, unless, and if they're very small, they would have what I call, you know, an outsource model. They'll outsource the whole thing to somebody. Hey, you're too small or we just don't want to focus on this, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So this was a product for the EDI team, basically, to help them be more efficient. Yes, that's right. Got it. Perfect. And uh, you know, how did the, the business side of it evolve over the years? Uh, you were personally leading sales? Yeah, for like, the full uh, number of years I did sales, I led identify sales and marketing and the product mm-hmm. management. So I defined the product mm-hmm. and encode the product. Besides that, I was quite involved um, on the support and services side in shaping that mm-hmm. and running those teams. So for a long time, I ran all of those teams or did it myself mm-hmm. till you we were big enough to, for me to hire those, those people to run those teams. And what was the like the trend line for the revenue? Like you were at one million around ninety nine two thousand. So yeah, so how did that? So in um, two thousand two thousand one, we were a million plus in revenues, and then um, in I think by two thousand five, we might have been, I think we were sub ten still, 
Um, and by 2010, we might have been a $10 million company. I don't know, something like that, $10, $12 million company. But but we kept our revenues kept increasing year over year. We I think we sustained a growth of about fifteen to twenty percent year over year on the top line. And but eventually we also put a put down to say okay we have to be profitable. And then by the time we you know, a couple of years ago, we were growing at a top line of seventeen eighteen percent with a EBITDA margin of forty five percent plus. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, you know, what are some of the lessons you can share about doing? high-ticket business-to-business sales? I think it's, it's value, right? You have to have a product that, ha- that gives a value to the customer. The product should work. should work first and then provide mm-hmm. increasing value over time. And when you provide the increasing value, you become more and more indispensable. But also, it's very difficult for somebody to kind of come in and replace you because you are, they picked you and you are, you know, you are improving the product month after month. So I think... Um, uh, to ensure that you give great value to, to your customers and increase the value year over year is important. As regarding the ticket, high ticket, you have to be va- value-based selling versus a trans- you know, just like, here's a product, here's the features, here's a cost. So what's the value that that gives you? You do value-based pricing versus um, a pure vanilla transaction-based pricing. So that'll be the second as my pricing, uh, as a rate of pricing. The third is that, uh, you know, you have to make sure the products are enterprise grade and enterprise adoption, enterprise-wide adoption. If you don't have that, it becomes very difficult um, to kind of to sell an enterprise-grade product at you know million or few million dollars a customer. But those are things that you have to keep in mind. How do you do value-based pricing? You kind of see what the value the customer see, what's the pain the customer is having, what how much are they you know how much is it costing them to do this, and how difficult it is, and how big the need is. And in the process, you say, our product delivers this value to a typical customer, and therefore we should charge it. They can reduce headcount by X. They can become efficient by Y. There's a compliance manager on top of it. So you look at those different variables and then decide, you know, this is how we're going to price a product. And over time, you, of course, correct. you start somewhere and then you start tweaking your pricing and then come to the pricing that you really want to offer more. Mm-hmm. How much should you leave on the table when you do value-based pricing? Like, should you leave half the value on the table for the no, customer? No, it's, um, it's not a science. You have to kind of, it's, uh, you have to feel it through and, and try different pricing and see what happens. But it's not something that, um, that you can just kind of scientifically say, oh, I see you five headcounts and they were paying for three. You have to see, you know, some total of a number of things come into play. You have to understand the business really well. You have to understand where all your product fits in, what the ancillary cost. And then the processing of oh, this product should be priced at this for customers and they will pay it. And over time, you incrementally keep changing because you get more mature in understanding the customer, the value of a the product, the product is increasing. So you keep tweaking it to come to a point, say, you know what, this is a good stable point for a product and we keep doing a course of, you know, living adjustments, so to speak, every year because the product, you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. become more and more expensive over years to build a product. And... Do you face pushbacks when you increase the price every year? Um, like, we did, but you know, we did. We, we didn't increase the price by you know ten percent, by two three percent, because mm-hmm. that's we are allowed to do that because we make in the contract that we'll increase the price. So that okay. we are allowed to increase the price of product up to X. So See. they already knew that going in. It's only if we decide to charge a lot more than that that becomes an issue. But mm-hmm. if it's within that, okay. yeah, some customers are always complaining. Hey, why am I paying? Extra, I'm not getting that much. And there'll always be that customers, but, you know, it's, it's, it's one size fits all. We say, this is what we're increasing and 
and we do what we do. And, uh, and then some people listen to the customers say, well, let's figure out how to make you whole if you feel that there's too much of a, of a bump. And then you work with those mm-hmm. customers, mm-hmm. but um, no, it was not a major problem. Sooner or later, we solved all the problems. Mm-hmm. Help me understand how you build a team and a culture for Edifix. Um, <clears throat> the team was built one of 1% at a time, figuring out how you want, who you want in the engineering side, who do you want in the um, sales side or marketing side or corporate services or admin services. So that's a, that's a trial and error that you do, especially if you're not run businesses before. So you build a team 1% at a time and the culture is where, you know, you define, you know, what's your North Star. And from that North Star, you define what kind of company you want to be and therefore what kind of people you hire in that company. And, and we just we did exactly that. We hired people who were very motivated, were culturally aligned in how they, they conducted themselves and how they work, how they interact with other team members. So we had, you know, it was a lot of trial and error. We learned a lot, but eventually put together a pretty good team. So, you know, tell me about the, the exit. The, I believe you had an exit here in 2019. Yeah, we had an exit in 2019. We sold over half a company to a couple of private equity guys. And, uh, you know, it's, it was time for my leaders to realize some, some gains from all the options. And because they worked, you know, my leaders had been for 10 to 20 years, depending on who it was. And there was a lot of longevity. Attrition rate was like 1-2%. And the, the wow. number of people who are with 5 years, 10 years, et cetera, was pretty big. Um, so, um, so I want to kind of make, give them rewards for what they have done. And uh, so it's, uh, so the, the kind of acquisition or the M&A became a, a good thing to do. Um, it was a good acquisition, um, the market was pretty frothy, um, but we are, you know, we are a darling of the industry, right? Our kind of companies don't exist too much. And uh, if you look at our, if you look at a company that is in a vertical that is growing 15, 20% year over year with 45% EBITDA margin, north of hundred million mm-hmm. revenues, those are very few companies. Then we owned our, whatever we did, we owned that space. You know, it would be very difficult to compete against. Yeah, you, you had crossed uh, $100 million by 2019. We had, oh yeah, we were a $150 million company. Wow, amazing. And this was from, what was the country-wise split for this revenue? It was mostly U.S. We, we had very little revenue okay. from outside. Mm. And it was all healthcare companies only, like from a sector yeah. perspective. It was all okay. And so you could have also looked at an IPO as an option. Why choose uh, m and They can do an IPO. This, it's not that you couldn't do an IPO. There's a lot of baggage um, and there's a lot of inertia you need for going public. Everything from, you know, uh, you know, having investors backing you up so they can do a roadshow, show the company has its chops. Uh, and number one. Number two is that you have to have a very strong leadership team, which is different. Art. Our team was not strong enough for an IPO. They were strong enough to run the company because the IPO will look for some kinds of leaders and, and leadership team. Mm. Um, so instead of going the IPO route and struggling through it, we said, you know, let's just we'll sell off, off the company getting a good result. And uh, we still hold a stock in the company, me and my leaders. And so um, it just worked out well. My IPO is always an option, but we didn't think there was an option for us mm. given given what we are thinking in terms of uh, just the, you know, just, just where the company was. And, uh, and remember that <clears throat> we, had, we had cultivated the company and built over time where I took very junior leaders and, and built them in, within, within NetFX 
Whereas in a typical investor funding company, you'll get a lot of outside, um, you'll get a lot of outside leadership and they look good on paper, they mm. look good on the resume, they mm. look good on the website. But I had cultivated them mm. from being very junior people, but they became very, very good. And so mm. the, the, while the external entities might not respect or appreciate the depth and the, the relevance and the potency of our leadership team, uh, no, there was complete world that we had people. But, but you know, IPO mm. is, is a different kind of packaging. And especially if you don't have any investors, mm. it becomes a bit tough also at that time. Did you also choose m because you had decided to like take a step back or did that taking a step back happen once the, like, uh, did it follow the acquisition? No, I, I took a step back after. So we sold the, we sold the company. Then I gave over the baton to my number two, who became the CEO of the company. Mm-hmm. So about six to nine months in the company, I, I transitioned over to, to, to another person because I was not interested in running the company. And I was not ever in fact running the company much anyways for the last seven, eight years because the operating council was running it. I had a, my council, my top leaders, and they used to run the company. And I really even like five years, I was sitting in India for 14 to 19. I, um, those five years, the company was running autopilot because the operating council was running. So I was not really spending more than half an hour on the company uh, because, you know, the company was wow. running good, was profitable, yeah. the margin was good, the growth top, top line was good. So I didn't have to do much. Mm. You know, I could have, you know, declared a CEO much ahead of time. Yes, I could have done that. That would have been a good move. But no, I didn't have to be too involved. Mm-hmm. What were you doing in India? Those I was just years? there for some personal reasons. So I just moved to India for a few years. And right now you're back in the That's US. Right. So what next? Once the sale happened, I assume you would have got a decent amount of value for the equity uh, which you parted with. <laughs> Yeah, so it was uh, it's a good exit. Um, uh, How much was the company value? It was a unicorn, so it was north of a billion. So, oh. so it was uh, you know it was a pre-coveted asset in the healthcare space. When the enterprise healthcare space, there are not too many assets that are of that revenue with that top line growth and that kind of revenue margin and the dominance we had in our mm-hmm. products in the we every area we were in we dominated that area. So given all of that. Um, it is not, those kind of assets are far and few in between in the healthcare space. Um, and so we got a, we got a good value for the company. So, you know, tell me about your personal journey from here. Like once the, the sale went through and what next for you? Yeah. So then, you know, I, I had, by that time I already started working on Round Glass while I was in India and, uh, you know, I was disenchanted with the healthcare system of, of, of the world, U.S. including it. It was like what you call a disease management or a sick care system that you fall sick, we either do nothing, pump with chemicals mm. or put you under the knife. And so mm. what happened was that I started working on a concept for, I think, you know, how do we care for people? And the concept was holistic well-being. How do you ensure physical and emotional mm. and, uh, you know, spiritual, social, professional, financial, community and planetary well-being. So we had eight pillars of well-being. So we said, how do we take care of people? And that was holistic well-being. I said, how do we manifest that into product? How does, how does, it, how does an app, you know, solve this? And so my, my journey became that, that around last way. So how do we fix these problems that we, that I saw, I saw so easily. And so basically showing people how to live because it's a model lifestyle that causes most of the chronic air diseases, whether it's cancer and back pain and depression and blood pressure and knee problems, et cetera. And 70% of the healthcare dollars in the U.S. goes towards chronic care and probably end of life a little bit. 
<laughs> so our intent was if people can live well, they won't face all of these lifestyle diseases that is making them ill. At the same time, you know, um, causing such a such a drain on the healthcare system, and the healthcare system really was not working. For so that gave the genesis of Ramdas to to build an app or a product that becomes everybody's life coach and shows them how to live from the day to day to the big issues that are, that are thrown at them or the curveballs that life throws at people, how to deal with all of that and and live from a foundation holistic well-being and live from joy. So that became the, the rallying cry of mantra for, for Anglas. So how do you get people to live well? Um, so I think for people to live well, um, you know, it's... Um, it's, it's um, what I call awareness. How do you create an awareness of things that are good and important for you, but you might not know? And then how do you give them a way to practice those aspects and things in life so that you just make it second nature, like brushing your teeth and having breakfast? And so you can either come and say, hey, I want to explore meditation or I want to you know, find a better way of living and therefore I'll explore what you allow me to do, the content and the tools that we have. Or you're saying, I have a very specific issue I want to deal with or, 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 or focus on. And that could be, let's say, um, um, stress in the workplace or stress in a relationship or whatever. And so I think when that happens, um, you come to our app and say, oh, let me get started on nourishing my relationships or let's get started on how to reduce stress in my in my workplace, or how do I inculcate healthy habits? So you start saying, let me get started, and then we show you a path, a way to enable, focus, and solve that, and overcome that issue. And then you go deeper and deeper so that you can become better and better at addressing that issue, like parenting a teenager. So we give you a very prescriptive way, structured and unstructured, of solving those issues through all the tools of holistic well-being. It can be meditation or sleep or food or music. There's so many tools, there's so many pathways of verticals you have. So we say, if you mix and match these things, you can solve this issue. And some people might have, might gravitate towards certain tools and pathways of verticals more than the other. So you then reject the formula to give them more of what they resonate with and less of what they don't resonate with and make the formula better and better for them over time. But, but we will take virtually every modality of holistic well-being from what we have today, which is meditation, such mindfulness, food, music, yoga, movement, to many others that we will add. And, and the potpourri of that will allow you to solve any particular issue in life. life. And then as you learn, you can create your own custom journey or your own custom solution that when this happens, this is what I want to do. You see, pick and choose, and you can create your own custom program for healthy habits or healthy routine or healthy eating habits or when you, when you get stressed out, what do you do? So the journey starts with like some sort of an assessment or something? Like no, no assessment. Help you assessment understand over, over a period of time. It doesn't happen right away. So just okay. say it's a criminal process of getting to know you. So you don't, you don't become yeah. a friend overnight, right? You, you get to know your person, mm. whether it's a friendship or a relationship over time. Similarly that you ask questions, mm. you observe, uh, you try things, some things you like doing, not doing, something you like doing together, not doing. You know, you learn from, you know, the, the, the things that happen in the relationship and then you 
then you become better at it. The same way we learn from the users, from their, what content they're consuming, from the questions that they answer for us, for the things that they pick. And from that, we get to know them better and better and therefore become better, pres- pres- become better prescriptions for them to become a more effective life coach. So we are a digital life coach. So let's say, like, if you could say I, I am a potential customer, what would my journey be like? First of all, how would I learn about the app? How would I discover it? Like, do you do some sort of paid marketing or is it on, on the basis of word of mouth? How does the discovery happen? So discovery is, you know, a regular growth channel, right? You you have users and you have a database of users. You want social media, you do paid, you can do PR, you can go through influencers. So we explore all of those channels and see which ones are more beneficial for us for the money we are spending. And as a result of which, you know, we fine-tune our marketing. But there's a process we're going through right now. It's figuring out what are the right or the best channels for us? What do we have to say and how do we have to say our, our story? How, how is the storytelling very focused and very targeted? So the storytelling, what channels to use, how much money to spend, where, all of that is the fine-tuning we're doing right now. So let's say I, I discover and I download the app. Then what? Well, makes, you pick a, you, you, what would my you pick experience a, be? A area to focus on, and then based on what you mm. pick, will guide you through what you have to do. That these are things you can do in the different uh, areas of holistic mm. well-being in order to address that. Like I, I would pick, for example, yoga if I think I need to be physically fitter, or I would pick meditation if I think I need to focus more on my mental well-being. Like, that's how it would happen. Uh, yeah, so it can, it can focus on the you want to pick a vertical like yoga or meditation or you might pick something like I want to manage my stress and we'll tell you what in yoga and meditation mm. or food or music you can do or listen to mm. in order to address the stress. Mm. So it has like a lot of categories which you can browse through and then pick a theme and on that theme there would be a like a curated <laughs> set of uh, videos or like yeah, yes, yes. like yeah. how do you yeah, like say? videos and audio and and written content yes mm. so it's some total of content different formats video short form long form audio written in the different verticals all coming mm. together to solve this which provide a solution and h- how have you built the content uh, we have own studio team that we have own content team we have own studio team so we have uh, we have experts who define and build the Like you've not like acquired content from outside, everything mm. you've built in-house. That's correct. So mm. I'm just trying to see what, what would like, you know, if I'm, let's say, interested in meditation or I'm interested in cooking and so on, a lot of these uh, social media apps or YouTube or the short video apps would anyway be learning from my behavior and showing me those kind of videos. And the number of videos which they would have would I mean, it's, it's like a constantly increasing library because those are user-generated videos. So for me as a consumer, I would probably be more inclined to spend time there. Like what would make people adopt this app? I think the reason you adopt this app is because it is holistic. It is not a singular pathway app. It's not a meditation app per se. Meditation is a component of the solution, not the solution. And so the very fact that we are solving your problems holistically through different pathways. The fact that we are problem-centric, right? We take a problem and say, this is how you're going to solve the problem. There's some total of things. That's how we do it. 
So it's a it's not a singular vertical app like a meditation or a fitness app. It's a sum total of everything you need to do and see what resonates more than the other to solve very specific problems in your life when it comes to how you live. So like in TikTok would be similar, right? Like on TikTok, you can get meditation video or you can get cooking videos or you can get fitness videos or whatever. So, you know, what would make me want to come here yeah. instead of a like a short mm -hmm. video app or yeah, something so two like things. that? Two things. One is, you know, before TikTok, it was YouTube and there's all the social media. So you could have used that too, but the fact it doesn't solve the problem. As a matter of fact, if anything, all these social media channels have screwed up your life. And also with kids who are addicted to these kind of things. So they don't solve a problem, they create a problem. Actually, they, they feed into people who want to use our, our, our app. Second is don't structuralize anything. They don't think this is, a, this is a program or a path or a sequence of things you can do. You have to go discover. Yes, you can go explore and discover and figure out what works for you. But I have a hard time believing that somebody who is stressed in the workplace or want to nurture the relationship to just find a bunch of videos that just help them. These are very, you know, these are, these things are ultimate in behavior change. Living through holistic well-being is the ultimate in behavior change. It's showing, it's changing the way you live. It's about living. And so there has to be a place where you have very cleaned up content with the right scripts, with the right presenters, with the right themes, uh, and in the right order and sequence of how things have to be done. That, that, that social media or YouTube or even the web will give you a whole bunch of stuff but won't tell you what to do with that stuff or how to really truly leverage it. I said, of, yeah, if you want to be anything but explorer, working every day, working a couple of hours, figuring out things, you can do that. There's absolutely no harm. But then you, you're going to take a video from here, a thing from there, collate it. This is what I want to do. You know, keep track of it. Then you have another thing. And then if you want to, you know, so you could do it. But do people have the time to really go and explore, you know, and say what resonates? Yeah, well, you could do it, but that's, that's a very expensive way. It's a very heavy footprint to be able to just go and look and solve problems like mm. that. Got it, got it. So like if I'm choosing stress at the workplace, then through Round Glass, it is a like a guided journey where each and everything is about stress in the workplace. But with a social media app, there will be like a mix of stuff and some related to one thing, some True. related to that thing. There's no kind of a guided True. journey True. over there. How did you, is there a science behind the content that you created? Like, let's say you took stress at the workplace as a theme and you created content for around that. So is there a science behind that? Like yeah, so, uh, so some all, way in which you know that my content yeah, will overcome this All our this content is, um, is done by experts who have been in this field for decades. <clears throat> so there is some level of scientific or evidence behind it, but not everything about holistic well-being has a scientific backing, so to speak. It has historical time-tested backing, but our intent also is to bring that this time-tested into a scientific realm and, and say how scientifically, how evidence-based, how does this really showcase itself? So that's, that, that onus is on us. But that being said, lots of, of ours is scientific and evidence-based, lots of stuff, you know, the experts that we use are very, very solid. The scripts are very clean. The processes, the programs are very clean. And we are getting more and more into mm -hmm. making everything evidence-based or scientific-based. Like for stress at the workplace, there would be like some sort of a psychologist who specializes in this area who would have created the content That's for right. you. And how do you monetize the app? So, you know, we have a free version of the app and we're yeah. going to have a premium version of the app. We have a yeah. premium version. And so the premium version will charge a certain number of dollars per user per year. 
and there'll be a revenue stream. We'll always have the free app because we want to democratize holistic wellness for the world. So there'll always be a free app and there'll be a premium. So are you building around us with the goal of profits or are profits incidental? No, you have to build a sustainable company, but you plunk the money back, the profits back into the company to reinvest in the company, to, to share with the associates the success of the company financially. So, but all the money will be put back in. And why would someone subscribe to the premium plan? What do they get extra? We're still, we're still, we're get still figuring it out. We have a lot of ideas, but we haven't really nailed down what will go in premium, what will stay in. So currently in the free app, you know, can you share some numbers? Like what are the number of users that you have? It's, or what it's are the pretty, downloads? So we don't or, have a lot of steady data because it's a fairly new app. So we are still figuring all that. And we just started a marketing. We didn't do a lot of marketing last year. So we launched it, but now we're doing proper marketing. So the numbers will be very preliminary. They won't make much sense. They're not that big because we just launched it. Now we're putting marketing behind it and we're building the next version of the app. We will, we'll, you know what, this is what the app truly is all about. And we have done us, we have done some good marketing behind it and therefore the numbers are. So you can ask me the question six months from now. I'll be happy to answer that because I'll have good data to back down. Mm, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it, got it. And I, I believe there's like a CSRM also of Roundglass. So Roundglass has a giving area which has three initiatives. <clears throat> one is Roundglass Sustain, uh, one is Roundglass Sports, and the third one is Roundglass Foundation. The the Sustain part is about showcasing the biodiversity of India in an educative, entertaining manner. Now, India is one of the most biodiverse countries in the world, but we don't understand, believe, showcase, or love it in that fashion. So we've done a phenomenal job, I think, in the three years or so that the sustain team has been working. We have started chronicling the habitat, the species, the wildlife, the conservation, the impact story, the human stories, related to sustain, sustain in India, the focus of their part of sustain. In, in, in uh, the foundation, we've done some really good work. We're almost in 1,600 villages of the 12,000 plus villages in Punjab, which we are making them eco-sustainable, all of them in 20 years. So we have learning programs, sports programs, tree plantation programs, waste management programs, rainwater harvesting programs. We have a lot of programs, some in pro or four in production and some in pilot. And the idea is that each village should be environmentally safe, water, soil and air, and financially sustainable so that nobody has to leave the village. And so we have now reached almost 1,600 villages in year five, which is a formidable kind of a achievement. But we will leave by between 2030 and 2035, all those 12,000 plus villages become eco-sustainable. We will have a generation of kids growing up globally aware to our learn programs, kids playing sports every evening. We'll plant a billion trees. We will we'll have waste management where the solid waste from houses will be totally composted and reused as organic manure. We're introducing solar, rainwater harvesting, cleaning up sewage water for irrigating farms, yoga, self-help groups. <clears throat> so we are, we, are, we are doing a lot with some pilot programs. The third is sports where we have, it's a football-centric academy, but we have other sports like field hockey and tennis. And it's a academy based on holistic development of the child. And as part of that, they become great athletes in their, in their discipline. Um, in, in, in football, we are number one in I-League as of now in the tournament. Under 18, 15, 13 team are, are top in the country. The number one women tennis place from our academy, tennis academy, number one, 16 place from our academy, the year, annually year old. In hockey, we have a lot of development grassroots centers and we are playing our kids two years, two years ahead. So under 15, play under 17, under 13, play under 15. So 
and they get they are winning tournaments and they are in football, hockey, and tennis. They are making it to the national teams. They can call to the national teams to be part of the team. So we have achieved a lot in the three plus years that the academy has been functional, and we plan to grow it. And but our intent is to to do it right. We have a very good model of staffing, of infrastructure, of how we create development grassroots academies to feed in the elite academy. How what is the scouting program? How's our athlete development program for holistic well-being. So it's a very different, differentiated academy and the results will show in the years to come because a lot of people don't understand what we're doing because it's just, and we're not doing it for commercial reasons, so it's becoming more difficult to understand. But we're doing all the right things for international standards to produce international leading athletes coming out of India and show India how sports rules should be done and maybe some other people in the world. But it's a well, it's a program that's, we've done, we've done a good job. Where are the academies? Like, these are like physical campuses, right? Yeah, so um, uh, the academy is in Mohali um, for all three of them. Mm. Um, the VR development grassroots okay. will be wherever the centers are in different parts of Punjab. Uh, and we're in the process of building mm. more infrastructure now. But these are all rented accommodations mm. and, you know, residential, school and uh, pitches and whatnot. They're all leased, out, leased uh, by us, but eventually we're building our own infrastructure. What made you want to do this? Like, uh, I'm guessing one part of it would be that you had cash from that exit and therefore you wanted to do good. But why specifically focus on India? Why specifically in this way? I had said that before even the, the exit because I said round glass by that time. And so it was, it was predated round glass. The reason I did it because, you know, the thing mm -hmm. is I, I was in India. I saw the problems in India. I said, I start here. And especially in the state of Punjab. And uh, so we're doing big things over there. And the reason, you know, and I, the way I look at it is that we are focused on Punjab, but we'll open the blueprint for the rest of the country, the world to learn from us, embed their people, learn from our playbooks. We'll, we'll provide visibility into our financials and our frameworks and our metrics and our studies, et cetera. So we'll, we'll open source all of that. So others can learn from it, but we only really want to focus on Punjab. And the reason I'm doing it because I can. It's my, my, my formula in life is very simple to whom much is given. Uh, and if X is given to you, then 100X is what you owe back to the world. And that's what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I got X in financial and experiential resources. I plan to give 100X back in the impact I want to have with what has been given to me. So, mm -hmm. so because I can, I'm doing it. And because I want to be in service of humanity uh, for the rest of my life, I believe that I've taken a lot. Now it's time to give back. And so mm -hmm. I've gotten to a certain stage where I've learned a lot of stuff. I can now use all of those resources to do something that's, mm. that's good for our planet and good for our next generation and good for humanity at large. It's because I can do it, I'm doing it. Amazing. And uh, is this all only your money or are there other partners, <clears throat> donors? Right now it's all my money. In the yeah. Foundation Work in Punjab, we will we'll start doing fundraising through our, mm. through our efforts to the program we're putting together. But for so far, for pretty much 99.9%. The reason why I say point one is because we have done we raised very tiny amounts in the foundation. So that accounts for maybe a couple of percentage points or something like that. But for most mm -hmm. part, it's, it's my own personal. Yes, right. And how much do you spend annually? How much do you? Like, we have spent to date, I think, north of, on the foundation itself, we have spent about 10 million to date as of end of last year. Just the foundation. Oh. But in sports and well, sustain, there's more money. Amazing. They spend more money on additional money on sustain mm -hmm. and sports. Mm -hmm. And sports is an expensive proposition. Mm. So, yeah, all, all, all in all, I think 
probably have spent north of 25 to 30 million dollars already in our in in these giving initiatives mm-hmm. so uh, le- why sports uh, i can understand sustain because is <clears throat> like uh, at the grassroots is the impact that is happening why sports like why did you want to uh, spend sports on that? because you know it's um, the way to kind of you know what sports teaches you nothing else can and i think you know punjab is a state where a lot of great sports people have come from so it's a sports is in their blood and how to leverage that and also how to show people that sports as a career can yield results can yield a a, a life that you can you know you can settle down so i think a country that doesn't respect sports is an element of life that you're missing you know i can't think of a country devoid of sports imagine india devoid of cricket Uh, what would India be like mm. if there was no cricket, no football, no mm. hockey, no tennis, no mm. table tennis, no kabaddi? I think that'd be a pretty boring country, you know. We'd be intellectual pontificators, which is nothing wrong with that. We have made a, you know, people have done great, great things over there. So I think sports, not just competitive mm. sports, but sports as a, as being part of your life, teaches you things that other things don't. Mm. And uh, so I mm. think it's important for the overall well-being of an individual to be involved in sports to be not because i'm going to play competitively tomorrow is because it it teaches me things that the school and the other things will not physical fitness mm. it, it teaches you mental toughness it shows you teamwork mm. and therefore how do you carry people with you how do you how do you learn to play with people you know and every sport has different things we just sports you know sports has kind of become a bit corrupted in some way because it becomes highly commercialized very money centric with very very strong vested in trust and uh, i hope that we that we can show the right way to do sports to india and to the world that look care for the athlete take care of the athlete take care of the coaches make sure you you know they also get paid well they also progress and let these elite athletes become great role models for kids who look up to them mm-hmm. millions and millions and millions of kids that look up to these sports people and i don't know how many of these sports people take it seriously and saying i am a role model kids look up to me and does look up to me what do i do for them because i've been given this privilege of 100 million followers of 400 million followers or a million followers and they watch every step of mine and you want to show that these elite athletes have a responsibility to a society and we will teach our kids that, that when you become a national international repute sports person that you have a obligation to society because because those people have put you on a pedestal you're like a like a human version of a god so to speak right that they they revere you they they worship you they cry for you and therefore they have an obligation to the world a responsibility towards those people and therefore you must behave and act differently than the mere mortals and the the people are as 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 accomplished as you are or have performed as great as you have and that i think goes for every leader everybody who is highly accomplished and highly successful have an obligation to society to lead by so why are you based in the us when there is so much that you're investing in india you know i have a home in india i have a home in us for my all my business dealings are in us and therefore being in us is important mm-hmm. for me i go to india 3 4 times a year mm-hmm. i look at all i have a very good team over mm-hmm. there so yeah i'll go keep going to india all the time but the And the the for profit round glass business that is based in the it's US. Well, it's well, it's almost it's based in US and yes, headquartered in the US, but the market is the US, North American, Europe, for the most part. 
So for me to sit in India and run a business won't make any sense when our, our mm-hmm. markets mm-hmm. are here and, and yeah. with the kind of work that's happening. So the, the Round Glass Living app is, is primarily targeting the Western audience? Um, not necessarily, except India is not a commercially big mm-hmm. market for us. It's a market, but right. not a commercial big, okay. commercially big market. So it is, it is, we mm-hmm. are selling in the, in the US, we're selling in India. We'll expand our geography, mm-hmm. but, but India is not a, a big commercial market for us. Mm-hmm. The Round Glass Living app, I'm just wondering if for something which is pure self-based learning. So it's essentially self-based learning, right? Like the videos which you watch and learn yeah, on your own. Yeah, eventually you'll, be, you'll have access um, to practitioners and experts also. But for the most part, you know, for the most part, it is, mm-hmm. you can, you, it's like a digital life coach, you know, giving you guided mm-hmm. journeys as you mm-hmm. called it. So um, it, is, it is a lot of self-observation, self-learning, self-practice, but with access to, mm-hmm. to vetted out experts and teachers that you can, can engage with mm. interacting. Mm. I'm just wondering, wondering if self-paced learning as an approach will have high engagement rates or not. Like, you know, out of every hundred people who download and install the app, how many would still be using it after three months? Uh, we'll like, see. I, I think we'll be successful. <laughs> I, I think they, uh, mm. we, we believe that we can, we can provide a digital life coach and be very effective at it. But it's a sum total of also giving social, creating social tribes and access to a marketplace of vetted out experts and teachers globally. So we believe that our formula is correct. Um, in the next three years, we'll execute a lot against that formula and we'll see where we end up. But I think we have, it'll, it'll work. Mm. Otherwise, it'll never be scalable. You can, there's not enough experts in this world to solve the problems that people are facing. Mm. So it better work because it, they have mm. no other choice. You, you don't have enough experts in the world. And then mm. the experts are not even uniform mm. in there. You know, only maybe 10% of the experts mm. are truly really good. 90% are, are a wash. So who are the good ones? Mm. Are they giving the right advice? Can it, is it scalable? If, it, if digital doesn't work, then, mm. then God help us. And that brings us to the end of this conversation. I want to ask you for a favor now. Did you like listening to this show? I'd love to hear your feedback about it. Do you have your own startup ideas? I'd love to hear them. Do you have questions for any of the guests that you heard about in this show? I'd love to get your questions and pass them on to the guests. Write to me at ad at thepodium.in. That's ad at t-h-e-p-o-d-i-u-m dot in.